0: Philippians chapter 2. Let's turn there. We're picking up in verse 14 this week. I'll read and then we will pray and then we'll study. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study this passage today, You would enable us to see the truth of your Word in context, that your Spirit would speak through the teaching of your Word, and that we would become ever more like Christ as we humbly submit to your Word in our lives. Amen. Okay. So we are looking at this section of philippians philippians as i've said is this book where there is so much emotion and affection that paul conveys for the uh philippian church he is keen that they continue to advance the gospel and it's worth remembering and and bringing back to your attention the end of chapter one where he emphasized that the manner of life the way in which we live um it should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It should be worthy of the gospel. Very similar to what he says in Ephesians, where he says um, to walk or or live in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called. As Christians, because we've been saved by the gospel, there is a standard of living, a way in which we should live, um, that is appropriate to those who believe in the gospel. Now, He goes on at the end of chapter 1 to talk about how they should strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened by their opponents. And then he goes on to say, it's been granted to you, this is chapter 1 verse 29, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Following Jesus, embracing the gospel, doesn't just mean having a belief in him. It means following him. And when we see his life, we see his life being one of rejection, one of suffering, one of trials, one of pain, that ultimately ends up on the cross. While we've seen in our our studies in Mark's gospel, while the disciples are there thinking that Jesus is going to establish this kingdom by kicking out the Romans and that they're going to be there ruling with Jesus and it's all going to be wonderful. Jesus says, no, you need to understand this. The Son of Man is going to be rejected. He's going to die on a cross and rise again on the third day. And if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and then you follow me. He pointed out to them that Jesus wasn't here simply to receive glory for himself. That glory will come, but he was here to suffer and to die. And those of us who follow Christ need to understand that suffering is going to be part of our lives. It's how God is going to work in us and through us. So he says that you to suffer for his sake sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw and i now hear and, and now hear that i still have so then we see it in chapter two how he talks about this love that we have for one another he's dealing as we're going to see as the letter progresses he's dealing with there being conflict amongst people within the church people having grudges and bitterness and and, and hatred towards one another over non-essential issues and he's talking about basically how we just put aside ourselves, put aside our will, and we are prepared to love others as if they're more important than ourselves, specifically because we follow The example of christ so all of these things are coming together he's talking about his christ here's how he lived we need to follow in his footsteps whether that means suffering like he suffered whether that means loving others when they don't love us all of these things we need to be followers of jesus now he ended that section with a glorification of christ which is going to ultimately happen But then he goes on in verse 12 and 13, which is where we left it last time, to say that they should continue to obey, to live correctly, working out their salvation with fear and trembling. So they are progressively saying, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to work at this. I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to consider others to be more important. I'm going to not prioritize myself. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to have this this affectionate empathy, this love, this encouragement. This is what I'm going to be like. I'm going to work at this. And you work at it with fear and trembling because you know that God is the one within you who is bringing the will and the work to do that. It's not you and God working side by side. It's not a 50% of you and 50% of God. It's you giving a 100% And every part of that 100% is empowered by God. Just as Jesus wasn't 50% man and 50% God, he was 100% man and 100% God. And still is. So, our salvation is 100% us and 100% God. We have to work at our salvation because God is the one working through us. Now it is in that context and all of these elements I've just brought back to you are going to get tied up in this section. Okay so all of these points are going to become relevant. Do all things So everything that you do. So in this context of loving one another, in this context of suffering for the sake of the gospel, in this context of not prioritizing yourself, in this context of being prepared to be obedient, even unto death, in that context, he says, no grumbling, no questioning. You see, it's one thing to endure for the gospel. It's another thing to endure for the gospel without grumbling. Now, you can't have the word grumbling without thinking of certain people. Don't worry, I'm not going to point you out. I'm talking about the Israelites. The Israelites. Now, I want you to turn with me briefly because I think there's something quite significant that Paul is doing with his argument here. Look at Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. Easy to find Exodus. You just go to the beginning of Genesis and it's the next book along. So in Exodus chapter fifteen, we have in chapter fifteen the song of Moses. We have him celebrating because the people have just uh, they've they've fled from Egypt. They got cornered by the Egyptian army at the banks of the Red Sea. There is that famous miraculous parting of the Red Sea. The Israelites walk across the Red Sea on dry land. And then just as miraculously as the Egyptian army pursue them, the sea comes back down again, drowning them all. And thus God's people are saved. And so there is much rejoicing throughout Exodus 15. And there is a song that goes on for the bulk of 21 verses. And then the next thing that happens in verse 22 of Exodus 15, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. This is fantastic, isn't it? It's like, yeah, we're free. We're not slaves anymore. This is wonderful, fantastic news. This is brilliant. Oh, this is the best thing ever. And so off they go into the wilderness, no water. Next day, no water. Next day, no water. And I imagine they'd have brought a little bit with them, but it'll all been gone by now. And so the people are walking in the heat, in the wilderness, in the desert, and they have no water. And then they finally, in verse 23, they come to Mara. They come to a place called Mara. They could not drink the water because it was bitter, therefore it was named Mara. Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. And basically the water was a bitter water that couldn't be drunk. And therefore, it's kind of like a bit of a false dawn. Oh, look, there's water, wonderful. Uh, You can't drink it. So um, that wasn't much help to them. And then we're told in verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to Yahweh and Yahweh showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Now, I believe that Paul is pointing us to these passages for several reasons. Let's have a look at it. Firstly here, we've got one, two, three verses. We're three verses away from rejoicing over victory to grumbling. That's how long it took. Three days and three verses. Good job, Israelites. Well done, three days to grumbling. Now, we can understand it, there's no water. They get, suddenly there is water, and they can't drink that water. Now I find that interesting. Sometimes when there's no hope, the struggle is less than when there's hope and then hope is removed. If you want water and there's no sign of any water, that's a struggle. If you want water and there is water and then you can't drink it, that's worse. That increases pain and suffering and trial. And so it's that that prompts them to grumble. And notice who they grumbled against. They grumbled against Moses. Now, those of you who were here for our History of the Holy Spirit series, we saw how Moses was uh, one of those very, very rare people in the Old Testament who had the Holy Spirit. What's interesting, what's significant, is us as New Testament believers, all of us who are Christians have the Holy Spirit, just like Moses did. But the rest of them didn't. They had... Uh, they had Moses who had the Spirit on their behalf, as it were. So, that's worth noting for now. But Moses is their leader, he's the representative, he's the one who goes to God for them, and they grumbled specifically against him. Now, why do I point that out? Because he says in Philippians, no grumbling and complaining. Now, the grumbling and complaining seems to obviously be a problem, or he wouldn't have said it, but he's talking about their attitude towards God, but how they're, they're, that then influences their interactions one to another. That's the context of all of Philippians 2. Everything we've been doing for the last two months is this interaction amongst people in the same congregation. And he's saying, look, no grumbling, no questioning no, no problems here. Now there's an implication there of the grumbling being Godward, but the broader context implies also that perhaps this is something that is affecting one another. So it's just like it is there in Exodus. They're complaining to Moses, but ultimately their complaint is with God. But what's interesting is that Moses is God's representative because Moses has God's spirit dwelling in him. What is different now, is that we're all Moses. We all have the Spirit. And I think this is one of the points that Paul has been trying to push in this whole section of how we treat each other. Your fellow Christian, who hurts you, your fellow Christian who treats you badly, your fellow Christian who you just can't get on with, your fellow Christian who annoys you, they are indwelt by the presence of God just as much as you are. You treat them badly, you're treating Christ badly. That's really important for us to get that. And the complaints and the grumblings one to another is ultimately a complaint to God. You know, God, can't you see how this person has hurt me? It's not like God's like, I, I must have missed that. I'm so sorry. How, how did that come about? How did that happen? I'll, I'll try and fix that in the next week or two. God knows he's sovereign. And so when we complain about another amongst our midst, we're complaining ultimately about God. And that's something that comes through clearly with this Uh, Moses scenario. What is interesting here is that Moses responds by crying to Yahweh. And I think, I think the issue so much with the Israelites and their grumbling, was that they were grumbling to Moses, hey Moses fix it, hey Moses sort it out. In other words, they should have been praying to God, to say, hey God, can we have water, isn't a bad thing. The problem is, is that they were cross with Moses, rather than asking God. The psalms are just full of people crying out to God for their needs, for their pain, for their struggles. We should always be doing that. So you see here the process in Exodus 15. They complain to Moses and Moses then does what is right, which is go to God. And I think there's an implication here for the Philippian church, and, and for us as well. That when our lives are a struggle, we need to make sure that we don't end up with our frustrations with God going on to other people. That'll be very very easy to do. On the most simple level, it's easy to understand. You know, if you've you've had two hours sleep for the last two nights, you're going to be a little bit less pleasant to be around than if you'd had ten hours sleep the last two nights. You know? And that's a good illustration of how our struggles affect other people around us. And it's difficult because if you haven't had enough sleep, everything is harder. Your motor skills are harder, the way you function is harder, everything is difficult, but it does still affect other people. And what was happening here is that these people, they've got a really serious situation. There is a genuine problem here. There is no water. They go without water much longer, they're going to be dead. But grumbling to Moses isn't how you deal with it. And if we have a problem with anybody in our midst, God is the one that can resolve that problem. And whatever else we do, and I'm not saying we never confront or deal with issues, but whatever else we do, God is the one ultimately that will be able to deal with it. So Moses goes to God, and God shows him a log And he throws the log in the water, and the water becomes sweet. Now, as I understand it, the log is representative of Christ. We have the wood, perhaps symbolic of the wooden cross, going into the water and making the water sweet. There's some parallels here with John's Gospel, which I won't get into today, but I do think that the concept of this water becoming living water is symbolic of salvation and Christ is the one who brings that salvation so the implication is is that when when you bring Christ into the midst, midst of your bitterness and, and bear in mind here in the Bible bitterness doesn't refer so much to what we call bitterness which is us having a bad attitude towards somebody because of our struggles or our pain it's actually just the struggles and the pain. When, when the Bible talks about someone enduring bitterness, that, that means that they're having a hardship. So there is a suffering that is relieved by Christ. And the water becomes sweet. And that's then remembered. And so they have the water and they go through the rest of... Um, Chapter 15, there's a lesson there for them. Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule. He says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, of Yahweh your God, and do what is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. Now look at the lesson here. Here's a problem. Water, right? can't drink it the log goes in and it makes it sweet and god says look here's your lesson here's your rule i'm not going to let you suffer i'm not going to let you go through all the egyptians went through i'm i'm able to i'm the healer i can resolve these situations but here's what you've got to do you've got to follow my ways now things are slightly different in the new testament i understand but the principle is very similar Jesus said famously that we are to pursue the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and these other things will be added unto you. What were the other things in context? Food, clothing, not much more. Not second homes or vacations or things like that. But you'll get by. You'll be okay. God will look after you. But your job is to focus on what you need to do. Now can you see how this fits in to the context of Philippians? He's just said in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You do what you're supposed to do, and God will be there working through you. That's exactly what's being said here. He's saying, look, you concentrate on keeping my commandments, right? And I'll, I'll get on top of the water situation. I'll make sure that these problems are okay. You concentrate on living right. So in chapter 16, they, uh, they come along and they come to the next place, the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled, there's that word again, against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, who's them? Moses and Aaron. You see how the problem is now being directed to other people? Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots, ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In other words, there we were, we were slaves, and we were miserable, and we hated it, but we ate. And now we're free, and we're in the wilderness, and there's no food. Now, how many verses ago did we have that statute, that lesson, that rule, the outworking of the water situation. And here they are, exactly the same situation. Exactly the same. With food. And they're grumbling. And Yahweh says to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And then we have the famous passage about the manna from heaven. And how God provides bread from heaven for them to eat and for their needs as he did day after day after day in the wilderness. Not luxury food, not, not the best food on the planet, but it was sufficient for their needs. They had to get on with doing what they were supposed to do and trust God to get on with what he was supposed to do. So they grumbled again. Now let's go back to Philippians. So when he says, do things without grumbling or questioning, what he's doing here is he's bringing our attention to this goings-on in the wilderness. He's bringing our attention to this. In the wilderness, the Israelites would complain and they would be complaining to people. It would affect their, their relationships with the leadership, their relationships with one another, and it affected how they viewed God. God was somehow deficient. Now, if we have needs, then we bring those needs to God. Cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. But that's different from grumbling. And I think the key difference is, is that prayers go upwards and grumbling goes sidewards. Prayers are vertical and grumbling is always horizontal. If you grumble privately to God, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where there's a huge problem with that. The so Psalms are full of it. Grumbling, by definition, is when you go horizontal. When your issues with God affect other people around you. And he says, you don't want to be doing that. You're not, we're not supposed to be like the Israelites we're not grumbling or questioning. And just like the Israelites were supposed to focus on what they were doing, this comes immediately, immediately after Paul says, you live right. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have got to live this love that Christ has modelled. And it's the hardest thing to do. And you're going to have to really work at it. But every ounce of effort you put in, and God is the one empowering you. He is working through you to bring that about, so you do it with fear and trembling, but you don't grumble, because God is working this about. You focus on what you need to do, and God will cope with everything else. So, he goes on to say, so that, verse 15, so that you may be blameless and innocent, It's a phrase that's often used in the Psalms about those who walk uprightly, whose way is blameless. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now this is is where it gets interesting what Paul is saying here. Look, he's saying, if you are going to be grumbling, then what happens is Your lack of faith affects other people. It affects other people. And and you can see how this happens, because he's saying that the result of doing things without grumbling and questioning is that you end up blameless and innocent. The implication is this, is if bad stuff happens, if you're suffering, if you're treated badly, if you're living in the midst of that, That's not your fault necessarily, but when you grumble, when you question, then you take blame. Do you understand that? In other words, you can be innocent and suffer, but when the suffering leads to grumbling and questioning, then you are no longer innocent. You're now at fault. You've now done wrong. And he says, you want to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. That's what we're working towards. We're working towards our sanctification. We are children of God, all of us, who are saved, but we're trying to become children of God without blemish. And he's very clear here. The grumbling is a blemish. It's part of the problem in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. In other words, this is how we distinguish ourselves. This is how we distinguish ourselves. You know, one thing that amazes me about atheism is how much atheists can hate someone they don't believe in. Methinks he doth protest too much. You know? Oh, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God at all. But I really hate him. That doesn't make any sense to me. If he doesn't exist, then why the hate? Why the problem? If he's all made up, why, why does this consume so much of you? Why are you so religious and evangelistic in your fervor? So, there is... In the midst of this this generation, there are these people who dislike God. They're angry with God. They don't like God. They don't like His ways, and there are an amazing number of people who will say they don't believe in God, but still hate Him and still blame Him for their woes, for their trials, and for their struggles. When we have struggles, us not grumbling is a real light in the darkness. Now, I don't want ever preaching Philippians to ever come across as preaching with a waggy finger. Now you make sure, because everything about Philippians is the opposite of that. This is Paul coming alongside people he loves, who are doing really well, and say, come on guys, I know this is hard, we've got to iron this out, though. So it's always, it's always needs to be communicated in that, you know, we can take these verses out of context and forget the broader context, and we miss the feel of, of the book. So I don't want anyone here to think that I'm somehow saying, well look, now you're going through a hard time right now. Stop grumbling, you're messing it up for the rest of us. You're making us look bad. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul has emphasized how in our trials, we treat one another with affectionate empathy, with love, with encouragement, with coming alongside. And it's doing that to one another that removes the need for grumbling. But now he's giving the other side, which is not to grumble anyway. And there's that balance either side. But I want you to understand, I mean, I know. You know, we've been through some trials in life. And I, I am as convicted as ever over this passage. Because while I wanted to raise my fist to heaven and shout at God, and have done many, many times... At times, I've allowed that to go horizontal. And the reality is, is that in my darkest hours, God was still in charge, God was still good, and he was still worthy of praise, always. I don't think we as Christians have to pretend that our trials aren't trials. There's no indication in Scripture that we have to pretend that our suffering isn't horrendously difficult. Never are we told to suck it up, put on a brave face, and be all sort of stoic about the whole thing. We're never told that. But, at the same time, we need to understand that we can be there Broken, bruised, and bloody from the trials that we've been through, tears streaming down our face and say God is still good. God is still sovereign. If you think that these kind of passages are implying that somehow you've got to pretend that everything's good, Oh, I'm a Christian. My life's rosy. I'm doing just fine. That's a lie. Don't go lying to people. What we need to do is this, is to stand with our scars, with our trials, in the midst of our suffering and say I don't have all the answers this isn't easy this is a struggle I pray daily for it to end but God is still God God is still sovereign God is still love and God it's not unusual for me to go through this because he went through it first for me and I am his follower that's how we live and that here Is what makes us shine, he says, as lights in the world. Sometimes Christians think that beating other people over the head with the Bible is how we shine as lights in the world. It's not. How we shine as lights in the world is living the Christian life without grumbling, in the midst of pain, without blaming God, without lashing out, And saying here I still stand I still trust in Christ I still know him to be good and I will not betray him and I will not deny him that's how we shine as a light now isn't it interesting that God is the light of the world Jesus is the light of the world and now we are referred to as lights of the world Why? Because it's God who's working through us. It's God who indwells us. We are little Christs. That's what Christians meant. Little Christs. Are we God? Oh gosh no. God forbid that we should suggest such a thing. But God himself indwells us. God himself empowers us. And so by his strength we can live in such a way as to be lights to the world. Do you think that I or you, in our own strength, could endure trials and stand up and praise God? I certainly can't. But Christ in me can. That's verses 12 and 13, working out. So, We shine fast, uh, we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. Now you see the difference here. I am a firm believer in the power of scripture to change people's life. Okay, I'm a firm believer in it. I think that when when we speak to unbelievers, that the Bible inherently has power. You can can share something from the Bible with an unbeliever, and they could hate you for it. But the Spirit of God works through His Word, and that can change their lives, retrospectively. But that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying, not you give the Bible to anybody else, but you hold fast to it. It's not about you sharing the gospel. It's not about you sharing the Bible. It's about you, in your life, us together, holding fast to the word of life so that the way in which we live, the way we treat one another, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, following Christ's example, not grumbling and complaining in the midst of suffering. That kind of living that enables us to shine as lights in the world. There is a place for us to share the Bible, but here he is emphasizing how we cling on to the Bible for ourselves and our lives become lights. Too many Christians can share the Bible but not live the Bible. And it's that that he's emphasizing here. So that, here's the result of all of this, us living the right way, not grumbling, being without blemish, shining in the midst of this generation that is wicked and evil and crooked and twisted, and we stick out and we stand out because of how we live, because we're clinging to the word of life. And by the way, one last thing on that word of life. Do you see the connection with Exodus 15 there? You live, this is your statute. You live this way. You keep the commandments and I'll worry about everything else. Here again, here is, you hold fast to the word of life. That's your job. So that, in the day of Christ, that's an implication of when Christ returns, or when he, at least, at the very least, when he sees Christ, when he dies, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now listen, this is... This is a really powerful thing he's saying here. He says, Here I am serving you guys, living for you guys. And he says, When I get to see Christ, I don't want my ministry to be in vain. I don't want this effort to come to nothing. Man, I tell you, I, I've, I've entered running races in the past. There's one race in particular I want to do really well at and I went there once four years ago and I didn't manage to finish the race. I was entered for the next three years and I didn't even get to the start line and I put in so much work for that race and I've never done well there and it's so frustrating. Paul. He's the same. He's like, I'm putting all this work in for ministry. I'm doing all of this stuff. I'm praying for you guys. I'm serving you guys. I've, I've ministered amongst you guys. And he says when, when I come to see Christ, I don't want that to be wasted. I don't want my work here to be wasted as pastor. I don't want your work as ministers to be wasted either. And what is the implication that Paul is saying here? He's saying, you need to live right, or my work is wasted. In other words, there's a responsibility on you, Philippians, for my work. I'm doing this and I'm making the effort, but if you guys don't respond, then my work is wasted. I don't want that to happen. Can you see the interconnectedness that Paul is preaching here? How we respond to one another affects everybody else. That's the body. You can't hurt the left arm without the rest of the body being affected. It affects all. And Paul is saying how you live your life affects me and my ministry. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In other words, even if I am going to end up dying because of the ministry that I do for you, he says, that's fine. I'm glad and I rejoice with you. If you are living right, then me giving my life for you is absolutely A-OK. Can you see how selflessness works in both directions? Paul is saying, you need to live right or my ministry is wasted, but I'm going to give my life for you so my ministry isn't wasted. Do you see that kind of two-way process? And that's why he repeats it at the end in the final verse. Likewise, you should be... You should be glad and rejoice with me. And what he's doing is he's pointing them back to where he started in chapter 1 by saying, look, you see my suffering and you're bothered. Don't be bothered about my suffering. God's in control of that. You do what's right and I'll do what's right and then we can rejoice in the midst of these circumstances. The hardest thing, I think, for us to understand in all of this and he kind of that whole section is brought to a close here next week we're going to look and see how he's going to give us practical examples of two people who they know who have been living correctly but one of the hardest things for us to understand and one thing that philippians is just keeps on hammering home to us is this if we as christians want to go through life being comfortable If we want to look out for ourselves and watch our own backs, we are are wasting our lives. And as Christians, God will never allow that to happen. And so when that happens, our grumbling exposes the fact that we wanted to have that comfortable life, that we expected to have that comfortable life. But God doesn't promise that to us. And Paul says, look, we can be glad, and we can rejoice. Why? Because we're lights in the world. Because we're changing. Because we're being Christ-like. Because we're obedient. These things he's been discussing in these verses, in these chapters, he's saying, look, this is where the rejoicing comes from. This is where the gladness comes from. It comes from us being Christ-like. It comes from us ministering. It comes from us loving one another. We rejoice and we're glad in that. You're worried about me being in prison, but that's not what you need to be worried about. You need to be worried about living right. See, that's what the Israelites did. The Israelites weren't worried about living right, and they were worried about the circumstances. And Paul says, look, you guys are doing well with the gospel, but there's one thing off key here. There's a lot of horizontal grumbling going on, and even you being concerned for my imprisonment is part of that. You, if you want me to be happy and be glad and rejoice, just get on with living like you're supposed to for God. Because I'll give my own life, Paul is saying, for you guys. I give my life for you. Just make sure it's worthwhile. That's what he's saying. Make sure it's worthwhile. Are we ministry-focused? What's a good life? What is it we're trying to accomplish or achieve? Make a certain amount of money? Be happy? Be comfortable? I mean, there's one thing we can be sure of, is we get progressively sicker until we die. So if you're hoping for that, you're not going to be on a good track, really. Are we focused on ministry? Are we seeking to love and to serve one another? Is that our joy? Is that our gladness? Is that our rejoicing? And the whole of this focus of this passage is that we're doing these things without grumbling because what grumbling does is it exposes. One thing I've learned through the trials of life is that My natural instinct to grumble and complain about my trials is an, an exposing of my desire for a comfortable life. It's an exposing of the selfishness of my heart. And it is for you as well. And again, we are not talking about what we would refer to in England as a stiff upper lip. Stoicism. Oh, I'm fine, don't you worry about me. I don't like that. Let me just tell you that now. If you're in need, tell your ministers who are called to love you that you're in need. There's nothing godly about pretending you're not in need when you are in need. There's nothing godly about pretending that you're doing fine when you're not doing fine. There's nothing godly about saying that it's okay when it's not okay. That is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of not being okay, in the midst of your trials, still rejoicing. Because there's ministry to do There's opportunities to love and to grow, and there's there's an opportunity to glorify Christ in the midst of our suffering. A lot of people struggle with that. They struggle with the idea of tears and suffering and rejoicing and gladness. That shouldn't be a struggle for us. You ever been to a funeral of a Christian? Then you understand joy and tears side by side. You understand what it is to lose someone that you love and to mourn and to weep and yet to be glad that they're with God and they're in a better place. That's not a one off thing for a Christian funeral. That's our life where we press on, bloodied and bruised, rejoicing and smiling through the tears. And saying, thank you, Lord, for all you've done for me. Please take this from me right now. But if not, I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to minister because that's why I'm here. That's what I'm called to do. And that's how I'm going to glorify you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this whole passage and section, Lord, that we would become these people whose love for one another, whose love for you, whose modeling of Christ would be such that we would be distracted enough from our own suffering to not grumble or question you are God, you are healer, you are sovereign, you are good, you are kind, you are merciful, you are long-suffering. May we remember who you are, be thankful for who you are in the midst of the most trying of times, that we might shine as lights in this generation lights in the darkness. May we hold fast to the word that brings life. There's so many distractions in this day and age, but may we cling to your word that we might think, speak, and act biblically. For your glory we ask this. Amen.